Good evening again. Uh, how great is God's Word? Oh, yeah, they're looking at, yeah. Uh, as we start this new section of God's Word tonight, we get to hear a new section of salvation history, a new section of what is going on in the world that God made. And it's going to be great to start this book, to think together about what God has done post-Jesus' time on earth. So I want us to pray and ask God to through His Word that we just heard, to shape us and mould us and see what He wants us to see. Let's pray. Father, tonight we want to thank You for the privilege that it is to come together and open up Your Word and hear of what has gone on in human history. We pray that Your Spirit this very night would help us to understand the huge and significant things that happened here before us and so would shape us to live in line with Your plans and purposes. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Imagine for a second that you actually heard God speak. Right? Well, what would that be like? What would his voice sound like? Like would it be some booming noise from the from the sky or some kind of clear, crisp British accent? I don't know. Like but what would it be like to hear God? Maybe it'd be more like something like that soft, quiet voice, where we're inside our minds, we kind of hear something or say someone say something, and maybe that's what God might sound like. Maybe we might hear God by thinking about circumstances in life, and maybe God speaks through circumstances, maybe a dream. We have a dream of things that go on, and that might be the way God might speak to us. Or maybe just through the everyday nature circumstances. You know, God, what should I do with my life? You know, should, should I take this opportunity? And you look up and the traffic lights turn green. Yes, he says. Well, it's clear, right? Imagine what it would be like to actually hear God. Of course, it's ideas like these that make so many people conclude that there is no God. Because, well, really, lots of people don't hear God. We don't hear some voice from the sky. We don't kind of think that God is speaking in our ears. And then some people come along and they say, no, I do hear God. And the people that don't go, you're crazy. Like, if you've got something going on in your head, what, what is going on? You've got to seem a bit loopy if you think that the traffic lights are somehow connected to God. Like, I know how they turn. There's, there's traffic guards and they've got cameras and they've got timers and settings and they just turn at a certain point. When it comes to God's voice... For so many, he's silent, and that silence confirms that there is no God. We hold on to the mantra that unless I see it, unless I touch it, unless I hear it, unless I feel it, it doesn't exist. And so people apply that way of thinking to God. God's not there. God doesn't matter. On the 12th of April, 1961, an amazing event happened the Russians sent a human being, Yuri Gagarin, into space for the first time. The first time someone had ever been into space and to, to orbit the earth. Shock horror, it's round. <laughs> what an amazing feat to go up through the clouds and out into outer space. The day after he did it, the Russian premier made this proud declaration. 
We flew a man into space, but we didn't see any God there. Since the 1960s, even earlier, this materialistic worldview has prevailed in our culture. Now, a materialistic worldview isn't a, isn't a worldview that just says, I, I just want to buy more stuff. You think about materialism, where we just want more material possessions. Right? Materialistic worldview is the worldview that says, well, I can only believe in, I can only trust in something I can see, something material, something that's got physicality to it. Materialism rejects the existence of anything that isn't physical. So the idea of a spiritual realm, well, you can't see it, feel it, touch it, whatever, it's not there. The idea of God, well, I haven't heard Him, I haven't seen Him. We went into outer space, He still wasn't there. Like, how far have we got to go? So materialism says, well, why would there be a God? And throws this idea of God out. But the problem with using materialism to rule out God is that it flies in the face of history. It flies in the face of history. See, we've got recorded on on the pages of history accounts of people who have claimed to see God. Now, lots of people claim to see God. Lots of people claim to see yetis and all sorts of things, right? But on the pages of history, we have so many, both people who believe in God and people who reject God, claim that something went on in the first century around the person of Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't have dreams or visions like so many other um, religions put forward where God spoke privately just to them in the quietness of their head and then they, they explained it to others. They didn't come along and find a special vest and glasses and be able to understand what's going in front of them. There wasn't some guru there that had this amazing knowledge and passed it on as a way of life and things you had to do from the deity above. But they observed in front of them what went on in human history. The immaterial God stepped into the material world. There was an intersection. And the claim of the Bible, the claim of history, is that if you were there at that time and place when Jesus walked the earth, you could have seen and heard and felt and touched God. Well, today as we start the book of Acts, we'll see in this book world-altering events take place a change of gears of what's going on in God's plan of of human history and things that will affect you and me forever. We'll find out tonight how you can hear God today. Today. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day He was taken up after He'd given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by making many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Acts starts out saying, P.S., by the way, this is volume two of a volume one series that a guy by the name of Luke wrote. His first volume was imaginatively called Luke. (laughs) Great name if you're going to start a book, if your name's Luke. And what the books of Luke and Acts do is explain what went on from an eyewitness account. See, Luke, as he described the events of human history, gathers together all sorts of different collections of of people's testimony and eyewitness and pulls them together because he is convinced God came to town. 
that Jesus is God. Now, Luke, he's no kind of naive cave dweller sitting in some cave in the first century grunting and eating bat wings, right? That's, that's not Luke. He's a medical doctor. He gets the material world. He knows that if you cut your arm and red stuff comes out, it's not going to last too long if you keep it coming out. He knows you've got to fix it. He's a doctor. And he kind of gathers together this information in an ordered way like a doctor ought. Look at this. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read the start of that. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the Word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the first, to write to you in orderly sequence, most honourable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. That sounds like a doctor, doesn't it? It's kind of writing in an ordered way from the first to the... It's kind of orderly sequence. It sounds kind of ordered. That's a good thing he's got better handwriting than doctors do today. Imagine that. Wrote it down, but I can't read it. Like, what do we do now? But what Luke is doing is collecting events together that actually happened from people who saw it, eyewitness accounts, ordering them together to show what he saw and others saw so that this man, Theophilus, and all who read it alongside him might have certainty. And Acts starts where Luke left off in volume 1. He summarizes the whole of volume 1 like this, Acts 1.1, I wrote the first narrative about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day He was taken up, after He had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles He had chosen. The first narrative about all that Jesus began to do and teach. You read that there and you start to see something odd, something interesting. See, this section of Acts is about a new stage. The, the, the bit of, of Luke starts um, over here, and you've got Luke starting and explaining the life of Jesus, and he, he dies, and then he rises again, and, and then it kind of moves on to what happens next. And lots of people think of the book of Acts as the book of the Acts of the Apostles, the things that the Apostles did, and it definitely does explain what went on after Jesus died and rose again and ascended into the heavens. Others call the book of Acts the... the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's about the acts of what God, the third person of the Trinity, did and, and His works. And still others come along and go, the book of Acts is about the acts of Jesus. But why would you say the acts of Jesus? Doesn't He ascend? Doesn't He disappear? Well, the word that's really interesting, you've got to slow down and read, is that Luke says, I wrote the first narrative of Theophilus, Acts 1.1, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Why began? I would have said all he did, and then now there's new stuff, but what he's saying is all the things that in that first volume of Luke that we wrote down about Jesus' life on earth, they were just the beginning. They were just the beginning of what Jesus would do and teach. If you're willing to accept these writings as an accurate view of the events of the first century, and they certainly do line up in so many ways with other secular accounts of the time, if you're willing to accept that these events happened, and you could be forgiven for thinking that the only ones who had access to this man Jesus and His works and words were those who were there. They're the only ones that could hear Him. And so once He's disappeared into the clouds, so would His works and words. Sure, people could write them down, and they could remember what He said, 
but he still wasn't him speaking. He couldn't hear Jesus anymore. But Acts starts by saying that all that happened before his ascension was just the beginning of his works and words. Acts starts with a big, fat, to-be-continued stamped across the works and words of Jesus. To be continued. There is more to come. Question is, how? How is it possible to hear God while He's no longer with us in a material sense? I mean, can we actually hear Jesus today? Now, hold on to that question, because before we answer that, we need to work out a few more things. Point number two tonight, I'll, I'll tell you them as we go through, we actually need to work out what happened to Jesus. What happened to Jesus? Luke chapter 1, verse 3. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. There's a few things we know about what happened to Jesus. He died, he suffered, and that's really summarizing his, his life and death. Jesus really died. He died on a Roman cross. Luke was telling us that the Scriptures point to that He died in our place. He died instead of us. He died as a sacrifice for those who would trust in Him. Jesus suffered. And then He rose. And we kind of hear that and we're like, yeah, yeah, I know, you know, we've heard the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. But just think about it. Think about the pain of someone who's dead, and I mean dead. You know, three days in the ground, stinky, rotten. And he comes back to life. This is amazing. He, he's saying Jesus rose. Paul talks about it in a different way in 1 Corinthians 15. Have a look at this. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep, then He appeared to James, then to all the Apostles, and last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, He also appeared to me. Paul says, Jesus really rose. If you were there, you could have seen Him and touched Him and felt Him like Thomas did, as He put His hands into the holes in Jesus' hands and feet. He, he, he said that at the time of Paul's writing, there were still people alive who'd seen Him rise from the dead. He's not saying there's this secret thing that God told me in a vision and then I moved on. He's going, no, 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 Jesus really lived and really died and really rose again. Go and ask the people that are alive today that you can still do it. You could test it. The reality of the resurrection was a testable thing. Something that people could actually see and had seen. What did Jesus do? He died, He rose, and then after He rose... He proved and spoke. Now, we often focus on the proof of the resurrection, like I've just done. We often go, yep, Jesus really rose from the dead, and we spend our time explaining those things, and we could do that all day. It's super important. Uh, Paul says that unless He rose from the dead, we should always give up the Christian faith. It's, it's not worth it. So, He proved it. He gave many convincing proofs, but that's not all that happened. Think about this. After He rose from the dead, He spoke. Wouldn't you want to know what He said? The one who has died and risen again spoke. 
And we have His words for us. He spoke about the kingdom of God. For 40 days He was there and He spoke about the kingdom of God. It makes you wonder, what is important in life? What do you spend your time speaking about? The kingdom of God was what was on His lips, was what He was speaking to those that were around Him. Something that had been promised so far before, and you keep seeing it throughout Acts, that all these events happened to fulfill what had been promised so much earlier in the Old Testament. He spoke about the kingdom of God, and He spoke about the promised Holy Spirit. Acts 1 verse 4, While He was with them, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which He said, You've heard Me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Sounds pretty amazing. What is this Holy Spirit? Who is this Holy Spirit? He's one that's coming, the comforter Jesus spoke of him of. And we'll find out more about him in the weeks to come. But the content of what Jesus said was about the kingdom of God and the Spirit of God. Then, what happened next? He ascended. Acts 1 verse 9. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus rose from the dead, lived 40 days, spoke about the kingdom and the Spirit, and then was lifted up, ascended to the heavens. Now, I wonder, what comes to your mind when you think of the ascension? Like, why did Jesus have to go up again? Why is, is that important? Well, there's a few things, because it means he, he didn't just disappear from the earth. It's not like Jesus was here, He rose, then where'd that guy go? You ever been in one of those situations where someone just disappears, and never hear about them again, and you just like, they just vanish from the face of the earth? You'd be like, well, did He really rise? Was it really a physical body? But for these guys, they saw Him ascend. They saw a human being with flesh and blood that's real, lift up into the clouds, and the clouds envelope Him. He is not missing. He is ascended. See, some people think of the ascension, the doctrine of the ascension, this idea of Jesus rising after His resurrection in the clouds, they think of it as kind of like an appendix to the Christian faith. You know, who, who needs an appendix, really? Like, what, what does it do? Does anyone? Well, I, you can have an appendix out, and you're like, sweet, it's out. I, I don't know. What, so it's kind of like this thing that, I don't know, if, if it was there or not, would it really make a difference? But if Jesus didn't ascend, there's some significant things we miss. Maybe he just vaporized and kind of went out everywhere. Maybe Jesus rose from the dead and then kind of just flooded the earth and the little bits of him and everything. You know, he's in the trees and the seats and the, and the, and, and the breeze. Jesus is everywhere. And you have this view that well, we call pantheism or panentheism, which is that God is in everything. There's a little bit of God everywhere. Maybe Jesus rose from the dead and then just kind of sprinkled throughout creation. But no... The bodily Jesus, as a human, raised into the clouds. The resurrected Jesus, we see, is still in a physical body. Now, so often you think of what being with God will be like and heaven, and, and you kind of, I don't know what you think of, but I still get like these cloud-like images. You know, are we real, are we not? We're fluffy, puffy, marshmallowy, I don't know. And you kind of get this, this ethereal, windy type view of what it would be like. But the ascension tells us that the age to come will be physical because Jesus rose physically into the heavens. 
He had a physical body, a resurrected body. And the future of those who trust in Jesus, who trust that He has died for them, and that as He rose, we too who trust in Him will be raised, will be a physical resurrected body, flesh and blood, like this. Jesus exists right now as flesh and blood, like you and me. Isn't that amazing? There is a human who has been raised and ascended, who is also God, who the Bible promises will come back to rule forever. Then, the ascension tells us that Jesus is actually somewhere. We're going to flick forward, get a bit of a preview, Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, verse 55. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into the heavens or sky. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is at God's right hand. Wherever God is right now, Jesus is physically there at, at His right hand, as a symbol of His power and authority, as one who has ascended to enact what will come next. In Acts 2.32, we'll look at it next week, but I want to give us a glimpse of it now. It says this, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since He has been exalted, lifted up to the right hand of God, and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, He has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but David himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God to enact God's judgment. The period of the enemies of God being made footstools of God has started now. And David was, was, was declaring that way back then when that was written about Jesus now. So, point number three, what does it all mean? What do all these events that are kind of here at the start of Acts mean? Because there's, there's a really helpful kind of pathway through it all. Firstly, Jesus' resurrection isn't merely a resuscitation. He didn't come back from the dead and just be like, oh, that was good, live another 50 years, then die. <laughs> right? That's what everyone who gets resuscitated does. They die. No, no, no one lives forever. But Jesus ascended, which means there's something going on here. It's resurrection. See, there's a link between the kingdom of God and the resurrection and the ascension. The day God seats the son of David at his right hand, that they, the enemies of God, are begun to be made a footstool, is a picture of judgment. We often think resurrection is awesome, new life, death's defeated, woo, and it's true. But resurrection is actually a picture of the last days, of God's judgment coming. In John, John 11, one of Jesus' best friends, Lazarus, dies. His sister, Martha, comes running to Jesus. Jesus comes late. He could have been there earlier, but doesn't. Martha's like, why did you let him die? You healed all these people. You gave them life. You, gave, you brought them back from their sickness. But Lazarus, who, who you loved and who we love, you let him die. Why did you let it die? And what we see is that physical death isn't Jesus' greatest concern at that point. There's something greater than physical death. Look at John eleven twenty three. 23. It's on the screen. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. It's nice. 
He's dead, but he'll rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. See what he said? she said? I know he will rise again in the resurrection. So the resurrection was, it was a Jewish picture of the last day. The resurrection was the last day when God would judge the earth, when all of our actions would be laid bare before God. And He would right the wrongs and see the, the things we'd thought and said and done and all the world had thought and said and done. And He would correct them. He would, he would distribute His justice on earth at the resurrection. And Martha's saying, I know at the resurrection all will rise and then be judged when the resurrection happens. I just would have liked Him to be alive a bit longer. That's what she was saying at that point. But when Jesus rises from the dead, he is saying the age of the resurrection has come. He is saying the kingdom of God has come. I am the king and the day of judgment is coming. It's a pretty scary thought if you think about it, that the day of judgment is coming. How would you feel right now if I said, when you walk out that door, there's going to be someone standing there who knows everything you've ever thought, said, and done in your whole life. All the, the dirty bits and pieces, that the bad thoughts you have of people, uh, the times you've gotten angry, the things you wish you never did, the things you wish you did do. They know them all, and as you walk out the door, it's going to stop you and list them for you. That's a pretty scary thought, right? None of us are perfect. We all have dodgy thoughts. And then, and then, imagine all the things that we've done against God. I mean, we haven't treated Him rightly. We haven't, we haven't, we haven't treated the, the, the one who's given us life and sustains life as the true and living God. We've spat in the face of God and we deserve His judgment. And the person standing at the door in this instance isn't just going to be, I don't know, some person in a red EV shirt. <laughs> we can't do that anyway if you're freaked out. There's nothing, there's, you know, the shirt doesn't give superpowers. Sad. Let me assure you, it'd freak you out. (laughs) But the person at the door is God Himself. That is what the day of the Lord will be like. The King will come and He will bring His judgment and justice. That's terrifying. So it makes sense when the apostles say to Jesus, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? He's just been talking about the coming of the kingdom. And, and he's talking about that reality of the king coming. And they say, well, are you restoring the kingdom? Is this the time for the kingdom to start? It's like, are you about to smash our political enemies and make Israel the central nation on earth? And they thought that the last day would come and the world would be judged and everything would be put right when God's king is installed on his throne from the line of David with all authority in heaven and earth. And there's something that's kind of right about that. God's king has come. But God will rule in a different way than they think. God has another stage in His plan. It's not like at the resurrection, the judgment comes straight away. And what we see now as we get to Acts, that the King has come, He has died and risen and ascended to the right hand. And now, the day of judgment is is kind of here, but we're waiting for it until Jesus comes back. And He will come back. And they're saying, is now the time? Are you going to do this now? Is it time to go? They're kind of excited, right? They're there going like, yeah, we're in with Jesus. Like, we're the good guys. We've got a seat at the table. Let's go smash the world. Let's go make Israel kings again. And, you know, let's go. But Jesus responds, one of the most annoying phrases I've ever heard. (laughs) 
It's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by His own authority. When you were a kid, did you ever hate it when your parents would send you to your room? And you're like, oh, how long am I in my room? And they'd say, until I tell you you are. Right? I do that to my kids all the time. <laughs> they hate it. Because we like to know what's going on. We like to know what, what's happening in the world around us. We hate waiting. We hate waiting for stuff to happen and trying to work it out. We just want to know what will happen. And there's a really helpful note for us here that in the plans and purposes of God, you need to know that we don't need to know everything. We don't need to know everything. We like to know everything. Sometimes we think we know everything. But there are times when God says, no, no, you, you don't know the times or the periods the Father has set. You don't know what is going on here. You need to remember who you are. There's this great moment in the book of Job as God talks to Job. Job's been great the whole way through. He gets to chapter 38 and he starts getting a bit frustrated with God and is like, man, this is all this suffering. Ah, I think I've been all right. I think I know what is right and what isn't. And God says, where were you when I established the earth? Tell me, Job. Do you have understanding? He says, who fixed the world's dimensions? Certainly you know. Who, who stretched out a measuring line across the world? Who supports its foundations? Who laid its cornerstones while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Were you there, Job? <laughs> no. Sometimes we like to stand and put God in the judgment seat. But the resurrection tells us that God is the judge and He will judge us. And the reality is we don't know the times and dates that certain things will happen but we get to know the content of what will happen. Jesus will come back and He will be the King. The apostles are standing there, trying to think through, oh, is He coming back? When's He coming back? What's happening? He's risen up into the clouds. They're all standing there together, kind of like, well, what, what do we do now, right? We just wait for Him to come back. And then two men in white clothes walk in, code word angel, right? That's the picture. Look at verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky, into heaven? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you've seen Him going into heaven. In other words, you don't know when Jesus is coming back. You don't know God's times and plans. But don't just stand there waiting. There's stuff to do. And here we start to see the next phase of the world. The thing that we're still caught up in now. Point number four. What's next? What's next? We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We don't need to know when He's coming back. We don't need to spill ink over looking for signs of the time. Are these the last days that, yes, we're in the last days. He's going to come tomorrow. Is there earthquakes more? No. Stop looking at the heavens. The angel like, get out of it. There's stuff to do. Verse 8. Jesus told them what they were to do next. You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They are the last recorded spoken words that came out of Jesus' physical mouth. The last thing he said. What would you say with your last words? You think it'd be pretty important, right? Especially if you had it planned. He says this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What an amazing promise. You will be my witnesses. And we read that and we think, yeah, that's what we're to do as Christians who believe in Jesus. We're to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. But who's Jesus talking to here? 
Who is the you? It's important to see, he was not just talking at this moment to a group of people, whoever was there, right? Yous, yous, yous lot. You will be the witnesses. He wasn't saying it like that. But to a list of specific people, Luke thought it was so important to tell us who Jesus was speaking to, he wrote down their names. He recorded it in history for us, verse 13. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas, son of James. Jesus is saying that these people, this group of people, would be their witness to the ends of the earth of Jesus. Now, that's pretty significant, right? But the other thing that's significant is that there's one person missing. Who is that? Whispering it. Paul, Jesus. Judas. We'll get to Paul. Judas. Because there's only 11. And Jesus had 12 that he set up. Now, Sometimes I hate when people come along and they look at the Bible and they pick out numbers like, oh, there's 11 here and it should be 12 and there's 144 and that's 7 and 12 12s and, and it, there's some kind of good imagery, but sometimes we can go too far. Uh, but here, there's actually something in it. He said, you will be my witnesses. Now, what does he mean by that, that you will be my witnesses? Didn't they already see the resurrection of Jesus? Hadn't they seen his life and death? Resurrection and ascension? What do you mean you will be my witnesses? They already witnessed it. Why is he saying you will be my witnesses? Well, he's saying it because witnesses will need to speak. They'll need to speak of what they have seen. You will be my witnesses. And he lays out the scope of their witnessing will be to Jerusalem, the center where it would happen. Remember Isaiah pointing forward to a date will come on my holy hill? Jerusalem, but then out to the next level around Judea and Samaria. And then to the ends of the earth, like New Zealand. <laughs> and, and it's going to be a huge scope. But they just asked when God was restoring the kingdom to Israel, but Jesus didn't tell them when, He told them how. He would restore the kingdom to Israel through their witness. The disciples' witness, the apostles' witness, through them speaking the word of Jesus to the world. But the problem is, there's only 11. So, in Acts 1.21, they actually get something that's going on that I think we miss. Therefore, from among the men who've accompanied us during the whole time the Lord went in and out amongst us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day He is taken up from us, from these, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of His resurrection. Now, there's something weird in that, if you look at it. They're saying... We need to pick a 12th man. The cricket team is no good without the 12th man. And so, you need the, the, the 12 because there's something special about the 12. And of the person they need to pick, they need to pick one that has seen everything from, John the, from the baptism of John the Baptist, when he baptized Jesus, all the way through to the ascension, and they would become a witness with us of his resurrection. And again, but didn't they already see it? How are they going to become a witness? It is necessary that one becomes... He's not saying we just need some more. Why only one? Why are they wanting one to become a witness with us of the resurrection? When Isaiah 43, that we've just gone through as a church, God says in the Old Testament that He has a witness. And that word for witness is used specifically 
of the people of Israel. Listen, Isaiah 43, 11. I, I am the Lord. Beside me there is no Savior. I alone declared, saved and proclaimed. Not some foreign God among you. So you are my witnesses. Who? This is the Lord's declaration. And I am God. Israel, the people of God, are His witnesses. And what Jesus is doing, when the team is one man down, there's 11, He needs to have the 12, because the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, are symbolizing and replacing the witness of the 12 tribes of Israel. They will be the witness to the ends of the earth. They failed. Jesus came and was the perfect Jew. And now He takes these 12 to continue the plan to the ends of the earth. So they need to make someone another witness, another special role that the others don't have. We call them apostles because they're sent by Jesus in a way that no one else in the entire world is sent. Do you know the word apostle means sent one? So here's where it all comes together. Jesus chooses 12 by lot. They cast lots. It falls on Matthias. Matthias is in. He's the chosen one. He chose 12 apostles to continue His word and work on earth. How do we hear Jesus today? Can we? We get to hear the witness, the testimony, not of lots of different people about their view of Jesus. I like to think of Jesus this, I like to think of Jesus that. No, we hear the witness through the Spirit-empowered word of the apostles. They are the ones that speak and we hear Jesus because they are the ones that Jesus sent out. Through the work of the promised Spirit, Jesus' Word and the Holy Spirit together are enabling the apostles to speak Jesus' Word to the world and we have it recorded for us. Here in the Scriptures, we hear Jesus speak. And it's not just like we're reading words and all that's Jesus. It's it's when you read them and you see them and, and the Spirit comes and shows you that Jesus really is God, you get it. You get it that you are hearing the voice of your Creator. And His Word is doing a living and active work in you to recognize that there is only one God and He died in your place. And He's risen again and He's ascended to the heavens and He's standing at the right hand of God. and He's going to come and bring judgment and the kingdom of God. And for those that are in Him, we do not have to fear because God is our Father and Jesus is our brother and our Savior. And you get it and and you feel it and you're like, ah, this is my God. Friends, by reading the Word of God, as the Spirit works His work, we hear God's voice today. Look around the room. People that have changed their lives, given up so many things, opportunities, so many desires and passions, because they are convinced they've heard the Word of the Lord. That Jesus walked on this earth in a material way and spoke and gave His Word to these people witnesses and now he still works today because that was just the beginning and now he works through his word by his spirit to see his gospel go out to the ends of the earth to you and to me and that means there are no other apostles today i know some churches have apostles kind of they, the, the kind of leader of an organization is seen as an apostle there are no none other than the 12 apostles plus paul <laughs> Because Jesus does send Paul in the vision that he has and he's seen the events and he goes sent out to the Gentiles. But there are no new apostles today. There is no one that can stand up and say, look, I've had a dream and Jesus told me that separate to what it says through what the apostle says, we should do this or that. 
See, if that could be possible, why didn't they just say, well, let's add some more witnesses in? Why did they say, you need to choose one more? Why didn't you say, yeah, well, let's take both of them? Matthias and the other dude, what's his name? <laughs> you can chat to him in heaven. No, they are the witnesses to the ends of the earth. And you know what that means? You know what all this means? This message has come by the word of the Spirit to recognize who Jesus is and tell us the judgment of God is coming. We live right now between the time that Jesus came and rose again and has ascended to be the right hand of God and at any moment until He could come back and judge the living and the dead. And all will rise at that point and all will be judged. We live in this, this overlap now between those two things. Recognizing the judgment of God is coming. And in this gap, we have the Word of God with the Spirit of God written down for us. The Word that gives life and relationship and allows us to call God our Father and heaven our home. And this stage of salvation history, this stage of what you and I are called to do in the plans and purposes of God is point the world around us to the witness of the apostles. To what they saw and said. And God, have you heard Jesus? Have you heard His voice? Have you seen what He has done for you and for me? So how do we respond as people now? What should we do? Well, two things. There's two things we must not do. Number one, we must not add to the apostolic word. We must make up new stuff. No, that's putting words in the mouth of Jesus. No, it, it, it is here. God's word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be completely equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do not add to the word of God. We must not add to it, and we must not sit on it. And by that, I don't mean like use it as a booster seat in, in your chair, right? I mean, we must not keep it to ourselves. The apostles are standing there after all this has happened. They've seen Jesus ascend into the sky. The two messengers, the two angels come along, and what do they say? Stop gazing into the stars. Stop standing there waiting for Jesus to come back. There's work to do. There's work to do. Friends, we've heard this message. And there's work to do for us. You might be here tonight and you may not have yet trusted in Jesus. There's work for you to do. To work out if this Jesus really is who the Bible claims him to be. To come and hear the word of God and ask the spirit of God to reveal to you what he has done for you. Don't just sit there gazing. Come and see. Taste and see and you will see that the Lord is good. And for those of us that do trust in this witness. Man, what are we here for? To see this word of God go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what we're here for. That is what this time is for, so that God's name might be held high, so the kingdom of God will be great, and people will be worshipping the King. What's really interesting is the rest of the book of Acts is broken up into those three sections. Chapters 1 to 7 on Jerusalem, chapters 8 to 11 on Judea and Samaria, and then chapters 12 to 28 on the witness to the ends of the earth. And that's where we fit. We live in this tension. So do not sit here, staring into the sky, but be excited by the witness of the Word of God and speak it, pointing people to God speaking today. How do we do that? How do we make sure we, we proclaim this witness? We'll come back next week and we hear the role of the Spirit as we speak the Word of God. Why don't we pray before we ask questions? Father God, tonight... We want to thank you that as we get into this, 
this book that shows us this next stage of salvation history that we're in, how exciting it is that we don't have to face judgment. That Jesus died in our place, that He took the penalty for us, that He suffered in our place and, and rose. We thank You so much that the resurrection age has come and Your judgment really is terrifying. But we ask that as we look to that terror, we'd also see Your grace and Your love and how great it is to be able to hear Your voice. Thank You that You've spoken to us through the Apostles' witness written down for us and recorded in the Scriptures and breathed out by Your Spirit as it was inspired and as we read it. We ask that your spirit would mold and shape us as we come to your word and that we'd sit under it and, and know you from it and experience you in it. That we wouldn't look for your word to come from other places or clearer signs or all, all sorts of things like that, but we would hear the apostolic witness once written and we would trust you and we would follow you and you would mold us and shape us into the likeness of your son. Today we pray, Lord, thank you. Thank you. Amen. All right, a few questions have come in. Let's see how we go. I'll go fast through them tonight because we're almost out of time. Uh, number one, are there any other sources about the 500 who witnessed the risen Jesus at once? Um, not, not that I know of. Um, there are other sources that say people claimed He rose from the dead and claimed they saw Him rise from the dead. I'm happy to point you in the direction of those. Um, but I'm not sure if uh, there are other sources that have said, yes, there definitely were 500 where that happens. Sometimes people say, I want to see a secular source, a non-Christian source go, yes, I'm convinced Jesus rose from the dead. But the problem is, if you're convinced Jesus rose from the dead, you can't be a secular source. It's a Christian source. You can't do that. So, um, I'd love to chat to you about that. If that's you, come grab me and we can talk about different ways you can go to see the evidences of the resurrection and the witnesses. Number two, is there a difference between believing and, be and being certain? Can you say that you believe in Jesus' death and resurrection without feeling 100% certain? Yeah, thank you. I think the reality is that we, we always waver. I mean, think about it. Who caught public transport here tonight? A show of hands, public transport. Oh, some. All right. How certain were you that the bus driver was really a bus driver? Were any of you 100% certain that they'd been, um, you know, they'd done their bus driving test? Anyone for sure certain? Right, yet you risked your life. <laughs> so we do it all the time. We're not 100% certain, but we still put, we still believe, we still trust, we still depend. We do it in relationships. Do you know that your loved one loves you? Well, I think so. Are you certain? Not totally, but do you put yourself out there? Yep. <laughs> and sometimes it's misguided and it hurts. <laughs> um, but here, the death and resurrection of Jesus, do I believe in Jesus' death? And do, do I trust that that is my only hope? that it actually went on? Could I be 100% certain? Well, probably not. But I can look at the evidence that exists and say, well, is there a better explanation? And as you look around, it seems like all the evidence of history points to the reality that He did rise from the dead. So I don't need to be 100% certain that He rose from the dead, but I need to put my life 100% in His hands. Because if I start going, oh, look, I think I can get to God another way. I think I can be good enough for God. And so I'll put, you know, half my life on, on Jesus' death in my place and half my life on me giving to the poor. And I think I'm saved by that. It's like, bah. No, 100% on Jesus' death and resurrection because He's the only way my sins can be paid for. It's, it's trusting Him. Okay, hope that's helpful. Next question. Like Jesus, do you think we'll have flesh and bones like humans in heaven? Absolutely. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about we'll be raised bodily and we'll be like this in the new creation, new heaven, new earth, new sky, new world, remade. It's the whole new world order. And yes, we'll be physically humans. 
Uh, next question. In Acts 1.20, how is Peter able to apply Psalm 69.25 and 109 verse 8 to Judas and use it as a reason to appoint a new apostle? Great question. The answer is because Jesus taught them how. Jesus explained to them and pointed to them in that. Let's go to Luke 24, the end of Luke. I think it's 24. Someone call out if they know where I'm going and I've got the wrong verse. (laughs) Guess what's in my head. Um, Okay, it's 25, 24, 25. Jesus said to them, Okay, so they're asking, astounded that Jesus is risen. They're like, what? Jesus is alive? No! Okay, 25. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. So the prophets have pointed forward. Right? The Psalms, they're here. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter His glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. So Jesus explained, He showed them how the Old Testament was pointing forward to these things in that time. That's how it happened. Last question. Do do, do Christians have to face judgment on the last day, even if they're already forgiven? Yeah, this is a helpful question, and there's differing views on this. Um, My take is, and I have to look at it more as to where I get it from, um, that as we come to the Scriptures, we see that all people will be judged and found guilty. But those that are in Christ, it's guilty but forgiven. So I think all of our works will be laid bare. uh, Or everything will be seen for what it really is on that day of reckoning, the day of judgment. Uh, We will have to give an account, the Scriptures tell us, uh, for the deeds that we have done while on earth. All of us have to give an account. Every word we've said and not done. I heard one John Piper once say, um, he, he thinks Facebook exists for the sole purpose of proving that we had more time on earth to pray. We will have to give account <laughs> for all that we've done. But, but, I know what the, 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 the verdict will be. Rowan Hillston, guilty. Sinner deserving death, judgment, and hell for. List of all that stuff, right? And then Jesus stands and says, paid in me. Welcome, brother. And at that point, how great it is to know that my sins are forgiven, even though I stand to account. I think that's worth praying about, don't you? Why don't we pray again? Father, we are so thankful that our sins can be forgiven. We are thankful that you provided forgiveness and that Jesus is King and that He's coming back again. And that even though we haven't treated you as we ought, we can call you our dad and the new creation at home. So we ask, as we think through this news, this witness, this testimony about who Jesus is and what He's done, as we think about how that can go to the ends of the earth, that you would use us tonight, tomorrow, for the rest of our lives to point to Jesus. Pray this in His name. Amen.